We have the opportunity and privilege now to open the Word of God and, and hear from the Lord this morning. And I, I'm just so blessed and so thankful that we can be together. I appreciated Ben's testimony this morning of how the faith that God has given us as a church, it strengthens us, doesn't it? It encourages us. There are times that I stop singing for a moment and just listen to your voices and hear your, your cries of praise to the Lord and it encourages my heart and did once again this morning. It's so good to be together. And if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Nehemiah. We have been for a couple weeks now studying uh, Ezra and now we're turning the corner into Nehemiah. We are very eager to see all that God has for us in this series. Um, it's a series of redemption. It's a series of a new beginning. It's a series where God's grace is on display in powerful ways. As we see people who are just like us, people who are not always faithful, but people who do love the Lord and and they they come back to the Lord and he's gracious to them and he restores them. And he does a new work in them, and we're eager to see and hear how God does this in and through the narrative of people coming back from exile. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah, which was originally one book um, written by the same author, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is God redeeming a people who, because of their sin, were in exile, away from the land. And him bringing them back and reinstituting temple worship and rebuilding the walls of the city, the city of God. And restoring hope to people that had lost hope. We'll read this morning in just a moment chapters 1 and 2. And uh, again, as you turn to Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2, let me, let me just provide a moment's worth of history and background. We walked through this two weeks ago, but it's easy to forget, and it's, it's helpful to be reminded this morning. I want to pick up the narrative, if you will, at 1 Samuel chapter 8. What's happening there is Samuel's a godly man. God has used Samuel in particular ways, but the nation of Israel, they... They were desiring a king. In fact, it says in 1 Samuel 8 that the people, the elders of Israel, came to Samuel and they desired a king. Why? To be like the other nations around them. We want a king that we can point to and say, that's our king. And God opposed this. He said, I am your king. But the elders of Israel came to Samuel and said, no, we want a, we want a physical king. We want a king that can lead us out into battle. We want a king who lives in a palace. We want to be like the countries around us. And God yielded to their request. And as you know, Saul became king. First Saul, then David, then Solomon. And after Solomon, there was the division. A division in the kingdom. There was the next king that was declared and the ten tribes to the north said, we don't want that king. We want a king of our own choosing. And they went their own way. So the kingdom to the north was called Jerusalem. The kingdom to the south was called Judah. There are ten tribes to the north. Two tribes to the south. Israel and Judah. The kings of Israel were all bad. They didn't have good kings. In fact, they led 
the people away from the true worship of the one living God and into false worship and idolatry. The kings of the south were at times better, um, but at times not so good themselves. And God, in his mercy, sent the prophets to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom as well. These prophets that would declare the word of the Lord, return to me, the Lord would say through those prophets. To the north, generally speaking, they were just rebellious and stubborn in their sin and their idolatry had taken a deep and abiding root in their heart. In fact, in 722, I want to put a timeline up on the screen to help you uh, just to think through and recall how this exile happened. In 722, God moved upon the Assyrians to the north to invade and conquer the northern kingdom, the ten tribes called Israel, and their inhabitants were exiled all over as slaves into many different countries. And because of their sin and rebellion from that time forward, the northern kingdom was no more. Judah continued on, yet in the years 606 to 586, Babylon came and conquered them in a few different stages, one most notably in 586 when when Babylon came in and Nebuchadnezzar ordered the destruction of God's temple. Can you imagine being there when, when the glory of the Lord was upon the temple and then to see these pagan people come in and tear down your temple and destroy it and take the the artifacts inside it, which were holy and set apart for service to, to your king. Can you imagine the sorrow you would feel watching that be destroyed? The walls were destroyed by Babylon 586. The temple was destroyed. The people of Judah were carried off into exile 500 miles away into Babylon. 537 B.C., Zerubbabel returns by the mercy of God, through the edict of King Cyrus, he returns to Jerusalem in the first wave. There are three waves of exiles. And what does Zerubbabel accomplish? He accomplishes worship that's restored, temple worship at the altar. It's restored. There is great rejoicing in chapter 4. You may recall there was great rejoicing. Simultaneously, there was great weeping as as those who were older and had seen the former glory of the temple were remembering the former glory of the temple. So theirs was a, a mourning, but also a rejoicing. It was, it was a wonderful moment. God was rebuilding Judah. He was restoring the work. In 516, you see on the screen, the temple was then completed. If you recall, there were three attempts um, to stop the work on the temple. Um, but God saw fit to use, use the people to rebuild the temple. And there on that day in chapter 6 in Ezra, there was great joy among the people. And it says God had given them great joy in this rebuilding of the temple. 458 B.C., the Persian king Artaxerxes sends Ezra the priest back 
to Jerusalem. So Ezra leads a second wave of exiles back and, and God uses him to cleanse the people. Intermarriage had happened. People had, had married unbelievers and God cleanses the people. He's restoring his people to himself. And where we find ourselves now this morning as we begin in Nehemiah is about 445 BC. Again, the Persian king, Artaxerxes, uh, he is there and Nehemiah is his cupbearer. What does it mean to be a cupbearer to the king? Well, one of the ways that uh, people in this time could get rid of leaders that they didn't like was to poison their food. And so there was appointed people who would be literally be cupbearers to the king. They would taste the food and uh, taste the wine, taste all things. And if they were still living, then it would go on to the king. So this was Nehemiah's post. He was put there by God. We'll get into that in a, in a little bit. But he was put there by God specifically for a purpose. And as we read this chronicle of how God was at work and moving in the lives of his people, we'll see the great and awesome hand of God. Again, restoring people, bringing them from a place of lacking in hope, of being downcast, of perhaps thinking that God had forgotten his promise. God forgets no promise that he makes. And we'll see that unfold in the story as we read it. So we're going to read chapter 1 now. Uh, Again, follow along with me in your Bible as we read the Word of God. I remind you as we read, this is the authoritative, perfect, inspired Word of the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in the Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the promise who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, 
Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Father, we pray together now as we look into your word as we humble ourselves under your word, that you would grant to us the ability to see by your Spirit's illumination, grant to us the ability to see how gracious a God you are, remembering your covenant promise. Lord, help us to see and be encouraged today that that activity that took place thousands of years ago, has bearing on our lives today. Because the same faithful God who remembered Israel is the same God today that remembers His people and remembers His promise and will not delay in fulfilling His promise. So Lord, build our faith today. Grant us eyes to see, hearts to believe. Move us, Lord. To faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 445 B.C. Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king. It's in December. That's the month of Chislev, as we see there in verse 1. He said, now it happened in the month of Chislev. That's December in the 20th year. 20th year of what? 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. Now, I, I want to put another slide so that you could see where Susa is. So he says he's in the citadel of Susa. What is the citadel of Susa? It's the, the capital of the Persian Empire. This is, if you're a Persian, this is the place to be. Now, it's, as, the, as the bird flies, it's 700 miles from Jerusalem to Susa. It's a three-month journey. Again, you're not getting on some uh, you know, fast train or, or travel by car. It's a three-month journey that Nehemiah, in a moment, will be embarking upon. Susa was a place to be. Now, think again about Nehemiah and his role. Can you imagine the blessings, the material blessings, of being a cupbearer to the king? That's, that's a place of intimate connection with the king. This is, this is a place where you're going to be conversing regularly, in fact, at least three times daily, with the king. You're his cupbearer. You're the one who's intimately acquainted with him and all of his needs. He wasn't the only one in the court of the king, but God had placed Nehemiah in this particularly wonderful position to have influence on this king. And we'll read in a moment, chapter 2, and see the influence that God granted to Nehemiah in his role as cupbearer of the king. Incidentally, uh, the, the, the actions, the, the uh, events of the story of Esther, which is the next book in the Bible, they, they take place here in about 483 to 473. So, so in between Ezra and Nehemiah, there's events that are happening and, and the story of Esther. You may remember Esther is a Jewish woman who finds favor with the king and then becomes queen. Do you recall the story? She risks her life to save the Jews against a plot to annihilate the Jews. She risks her life 
and saves them from this evil plot. You may recall the name Haman. Haman was a court official, um, and he wanted to kill the remnant of the Jews that were there. And, and the, these events all in Esther took place between these two storylines of Ezra and Nehemiah, again, around the years 483 to 473. It's just interesting how God, God always puts his people where he wants them to be to accomplish his purposes. We see that in Ezra. We see that in Nehemiah. We see that in the story of Esther as she is at the right place at the right time for such a season as this. I say that this morning because God has you. God has you where he has you because he intends to use you to accomplish his great and glorious purposes. I don't know what all of those great and glorious purposes may be. And, and at times we definitely lose sight of how God wants to use us. We definitely lose sight from time to time of the fact that God has placed us where he wants us to be. We definitely lose sight of that. This story is a reminder that God places his people where he wants them to be so that he can use them for his purposes to accomplish his good will and see his will come about. God wants to use each one of us. Now, why was rebuilding the walls, why was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem so important? It was so important, well, because first of all, God wanted them rebuilt. This was the city of God. This was the place of his glory dwelling. Remember when Solomon completed the temple and God by his presence in him, a mighty cloud dwelt there. This was the city of God. This was the place of the glory of God. And now the city and its walls, they're decrepit. They're, it's a shame. It was right that, that Nehemiah responded this way. Nehemiah evidently had a passion for the glory of God. And it's right that he responded this way. When he, when he saw the city of God in shambles, it was right that he desired to rebuild these walls. And it was right that God was moving upon him to rebuild these walls of the city. This was the city of God and the walls needed to be rebuilt. And God was using and mobilizing Ezra and Nehemiah and others for rebuilding and restoring. He used Zerubbabel in the early chapters in Ezra to do this great and glorious work. God's glory was at stake and God was rebuilding. He was restoring hope once again. Notice how Nehemiah responds. He responds by fasting and praying. You know, I think fasting has become not very popular in our day anymore. But it is a very legitimate response to our hunger and thirst for the Lord. It's, it's legitimate. Fasting, by the way, isn't our way of getting God's attention. Hey, God, look, I'm, I'm staying back from food so that I can get your attention and tell you that I'm really serious about this. No, fasting isn't God's way of getting our atten- getting God's attention. It's it's God God's way of getting ours. Because when we when we abstain from food, to say to the Lord, as much as my physical body would love physical sustenance, 
As much as my, my frame is craving something, there's something far greater that I crave, Lord, and it's you. It's, it's a hunger for you. It's a, a passion for you. Back in college, the Lord had moved on my heart in particular seasons to, to be given over to fasting. And, and, um, and there were moments when the Lord moved in powerful ways in my own heart and life. And I confess to you, the discipline of fasting has, has slipped away. Um, it's not like it's never practiced, but in my own heart, I, I recognize that this is something that I want and desire to get back to, that God might get my attention further for his glory and for my good. And Nehemiah's heart here is on display. He's, he's weeping. Let me ask you, can you think of a time in recent memory when when you wept for the glory of God. Maybe when you wept, when you experienced or saw the, the sin around you. I, I say to you that that is so appropriate for us to do. Not that we're putting on things like, oh, I, I have to weep now. No. But that, that the overflow of our heart would be that when we see the effects of sin and the destruction that it brings into the world and perhaps even into our own lives. That weeping is a right response to the holiness of God. Weeping is a right response when we, when we see the destruction of things that God intended for good that, that by sin it's been hindered. I just want to encourage you as you continue to, to cultivate a heart for the Lord, there, there may be times when He brings tears to your heart because you're so eager to see the glory of God on display, perhaps in your own heart and in the hearts of others. And, and that's entirely appropriate. Nehemiah was moved when he heard about the destruction of the city. He was moved when he heard that the people are downcast, that the people are in need. And he fasted and he prayed and he went before the Lord. And we'll get to the substance of some of the things that he prayed for in a few moments. But now, let's, let's turn and read now chapter 2 just to hear how God was with Nehemiah and how God answered the prayer of chapter 1. So now we're reading chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now let me pause there for a moment and say, Why would Nehemiah be afraid in the presence of the king? I thought he had a great relationship with the king. Well, he does. But in that day... If you were a cupbearer or if you were a court official, you did not reflect your face to be sad when you're in the presence of the king because that might reflect poorly on how he's doing as king. So you didn't do that. You didn't walk into the king's palace and into his courts with a sad face because that perhaps could be a reflection of how he's leading the country. And so you didn't do this. That's why it says there he was very much afraid. Now, Nehemiah knew what he was doing. He had asked God for favor. He had asked God for help. He knew what he was doing. 
But he was fearful because he didn't know how God would answer his prayer. That's what's going on here. And I was very much afraid. Let's pick it up. Verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king... And if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let's pause again for a moment. What's happening here is God is moving in the heart of a pagan king to supply all the building materials for the gates to be rebuilt, even for Nehemiah's own house to be built. God is, is providing for Nehemiah in ways that, that you know, he had asked for but was very much afraid to ask because this was a huge request. I, I would remind you as well that when we surveyed chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra, we saw in chapter 4 near to the end of the chapter that this same king, Artaxerxes, he had stopped the building of the temple. He had commanded that it stop. So at one point, He was definitely opposed to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That is also why Nehemiah here is is trembling. Because this is the king who made an edict to say, stop the building of the temple. I don't want that temple to be rebuilt. I don't want that city to be rebuilt. But what's happening is God's at work. And God is moving in the hearts of even pagan kings to, to make the way for Nehemiah to go back. Now again, he's in Susa, which is 700 miles away from Jerusalem, a three-month journey. So the king provides not just these letters which uh, enable this wood to be given. Kings cared very carefully for their resources in these forests because other marauding neighbors and neighboring nations would love to come in and take out supplies. So they, they were careful with their supplies. So there was a letter that Nehemiah needed to get these supplies. The king supplied it. We'll read in just a moment that the king not only supplied these resources, the king supplied uh, an army of people to go with Nehemiah for protection. Again, a three-month journey. Nehemiah is a Jew. I mean, the Jews were not liked by anyone at this time. Nobody. There were, there were plots all the time against the Jews. And so if people wanted to dispose of a Jewish person, and this guy's on a three-month journey through dangerous places, through many toils, dangers, and snares, if you will, he went. And so, so Artaxerxes provided a king's guard to go with him and prepare the way. And so you, you, just, you just see the hand of God at work in what's going on. Let's continue reading. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, verse 9, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me uh, our officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, 
it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Let's pause for a moment. What's what's happening here is Nehemiah has no idea the kind of reception that this venture is going to have. In fact, we see already that Sanballat and Tobiah, they're violently opposed to this. And so Nehemiah doesn't go and and tell people, hey, everybody in the town square, hey, we're going to rebuild the walls of the city. He doesn't do that yet. First, he goes in secret. He goes at night, just taking a few guys, doesn't tell the elders, doesn't tell anyone else what he's doing. He's going and inspecting the walls. He's surveying the work that God had called him to do so that he could then call the people to do the work that God was calling them to do. Let's finish the chapter now. Verse 17. Then I said to them, he did gather some people. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hand for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard, servant and Gresham of Arab heard it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So, when Nehemiah, after the survey of the walls, the survey of the task that God had given him to do, when Nehemiah inspects the work, he, he sees it, and then he gathers some people and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to rebuild the walls. We're going to return, return this city to a place of not earthly glory, but heavenly glory by rebuilding the walls. And establishing once again what God had decreed. And notice, I love the way that the people around him responded. What does it say there in verse 18? They said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hand for the good work. So, so as Nehemiah is, is walking with the Lord and responding to the Lord and surveying the work that God had called him to do, then he communicated the vision out for the people. And the people could see it and they wanted to be involved and they rose up ready to do the work. Chapter 3, which we won't read today, is the, the, just the story of how one group after another group worked together to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. We'll see that next week. As we read this story, as we 
follow along the narrative, we see that God is at work. And I want to point out a couple of ways in particular now, because you may be thinking again, what, what does this story have anything to do with me? I have bills that I can't pay. How does Nehemiah, how does Nehemiah affect my life? I have trouble in my relationships. What, what, is, what is the story about God bringing people back to their land? How, how does this make any difference in my life? Well, I will say to you, it makes a world of difference. Because the same God that was faithful then is faithful now. And, and as we walk through three observations here that we make of God, I hope and pray that you would be encouraged and strengthened and even challenged to believe God and, and trust in Him as He moves through His people. So what can we learn as we take chapters 1 and 2? What do we learn about God? We, we, we could preach a sermon about Nehemiah and his heart for God. That would be legitimate. Uh, we could preach a sermon about uh, the composition of prayer. In fact, if you recall, the very things that Pastor Chris led us through in the New City Catechism, what, what, what is prayer? It's, well, it's praise and it's supplication, it's petition, it's thanksgiving. All those four elements are here, right here, even in order in what Nehemiah prays. But this isn't so much uh, about that particularly. This is what we see about God in this passage. So first observation number one, God keeps his covenant promises. Let me, let me draw your attention again to verse 5. This is at the beginning of his fasting and praying, his response to the Lord. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. God is a covenant-keeping God. God is a promise-keeping God. Now, I recognize that you perhaps may hear this frequently when we're gathered on a Sunday morning, and yet I think, church, we just need to be reminded afresh again today that God keeps his promises. God is a covenant keeping God. What he says he's going to do is what will come to pass. And every promise that God makes to you this morning and to me as believers in the Lord, if you are in Christ, if you have recognized your need to have your sins forgiven and bowed your knee to the Lord Christ, every promise is yes and amen. God never goes back on his word. See, God had made a promise. I'm stepping back Now to Genesis chapter 12. God had made a promise to Abraham. And he said to Abraham, hey, Abraham, I want you to go to a country. I'm going to show you. So I want you to go. And in your going, here's what I'm going to say to you, Abraham. I'm going to make out of you a great nation. And I'm going to make out of you a a nation upon through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God made a promise in Genesis 12 to Abraham that he would bless all the earth through the descendants of Abraham. And God wasn't about now to not fulfill his promise to Abraham's people, the people of Israel. Now, in order to awaken in us perhaps a fresh appreciation for how God has been so faithful to his promise, I want to take us back 
again to 1 Samuel 8. I explained a little bit of the, the context of what was happening there. Again, the elders of Israel are coming to Samuel, one of the leaders, and they're declaring so much that they want a, a, an earthly king. That, that this really was a rejection. This is what God says, and we'll read it in a moment. This was a rejection of God himself because God was their king and he told them that. But they said, yeah, 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 but we still want a king. And I want to read to you how the Lord responded. When, when the elders came to Samuel and demanded a king, Samuel went and prayed and he went to the Lord and he said this. This is 1 Samuel 8, verses 7 and 9. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. In rejecting God as their king, the people will bring willfully bringing hardship and difficulty upon them. In fact, the very next thing, read 1 Samuel chapter 8 today. It's, it's very interesting. Samuel then turns, hearing this from the Lord, because the Lord called him to warn him. Samuel goes back to the elders and says, you, know you know what's going to happen here? The king is going to take your sons as his servants. The king is going to take your land and, and use it to benefit himself. The king is going to take your daughters and make them cooks and queens and and put them in all kinds of positions, some which you might find good, but most which you're going to find you want your daughter back. He's going to take your land. He's going to tax you. He's going to do all kinds of things. And the people, at the end of the chapter, they hear all of this warning, and they say, we don't care. We want a king. Do you see the heart of the people of Israel? At this point in time, their heart is hard to the Lord. Their heart is, is not toward the Lord. And at times, God's people are incredibly stubborn and rebellious. But God kept his promise to his people. God preserved a, a faithful remnant, even though they had sinned, even though had, they had walked away from the Lord, even though they had gone in their own direction. God preserved a faithful remnant so that his promise given to Abraham hundreds of years prior would be fulfilled. God is always a keeper of his promises. Look, look at verse 9 here and, and what he says in this prayer. Nehemiah is praying and he's confessing sin. And he says this, verse 9, But if you return to me, he's reminding God of what he had said earlier, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them. Listen to the promise. I will gather them, bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So Nehemiah is reminding God, not that he forgot, but with great expectation, reminding God of what he had promised and that God will promise to fulfill. And notice the step in between the declaration and now. See, Nehemiah repents of his sin. This is so critical, church. This is so critical. Nehemiah confesses the sin of Israel. Look at verse 6. He says, 
uh, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. So there's this corporate confession of sin. But then it becomes even more personal. Look at the next verse. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you're through your servant Moses. So, so there's this corporate confession. As Israel, we have forgotten you, Lord. And then Nehemiah goes deeper. And even me, my father's house, we have not kept the commandments. We have not kept the statutes that you gave to your servant Moses. There's confession. See what's happening here. God is moving on his people. God is stirring their hearts. I mean, you know, you wonder, why, why now, Nehemiah? Didn't you know about the destruction of Jerusalem? Why why did, it, why did you wait all this time? We don't have all the answers to those things. But what we see is God is moving in the heart of his servant, Nehemiah, on behalf of other people of Israel to do his great and glorious work because God is faithful to his promises. This points forward, by the way, this reminder that God is a covenant-keeping God. It points forward to this new and better covenant that comes to us in the new covenant age where God says this in Jeremiah 4, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts. And I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, for from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. This covenant-keeping God, who made a promise to Abraham that was eventually fulfilled through the line of David in the coming of Jesus the Messiah, this covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God fulfills His covenant promises to His people even when there seems to be great disarray. Do you see it? Jerusalem is still in ruins. People, how does it, how does Hakaliah describe it? They are in great trouble, verse 1. They're in shame. Yet God is fulfilling his promise. They didn't know it necessarily in that moment. They couldn't perceive it. They didn't say, hey, you know, we may be in shame, but but God, no, it seems as if, given the description, they had lost hope. And this morning, I, I, I just want to make the correlation to your life this morning. God is a covenant-keeping God. He is, he is the keeper of every single promise that he makes to you. And when God fulfills his promise, we don't always see how that always comes together, don't we? We can't always see. Sometimes it seems like our life might feel like we're in ruins too. God has preserved this story to encourage you this morning that he is faithful to his promises. He is faithful. He doesn't forget. And in the moment when you Begin to think, God has forgotten me. Why am I in the job that I'm in? Why am I having this marital difficulty? Why why do I not have the kind of hope or joy that I would love to see? Perhaps God has forgotten me. 
you're in Christ this morning, God has not forgotten you. He is at work. He is at work. He is fulfilling his promises. You may not be able to see it, but he is at work. That's why this story has been preserved for us. The people in Jerusalem were were in ruins. They had lost hope. They were in shame. And God, at the same time, God was fulfilling his promise. They didn't know how. 700 miles away, God was moving and orchestrating events that would bring hope to these people. They didn't know it. They couldn't see it. And so in the midst of not being able to see the hope that we would like to see, God is still at work. It may be that God's this morning working 700 miles away, doing something in someone's heart elsewhere that will be a carrier of hope to us. We have no idea how God's at work, but he is at work, dear church. Do you hear me? He's faithful to his promises. He will fulfill his promises. Number two, God is attentive to our prayer. Be reminded of this this morning. Look at at verse 6. Nehemiah says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that, I'm now, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of your Israel, your servants. He starts the prayer by declaring the sovereignty of God, O God of the heavens. You're the one who holds all things together. So he is the sovereign Lord, and yet he is the Lord, excuse me, who is attentive to the prayer of of his people. We see how God is attentive to his prayer here, but I want to focus our attention just for a moment. Look at the, the breath prayer, I'll call it. This morning I was with a brother recently and he said, Sometimes a lot of my prayers are breath prayers. What does that mean? Prayers that can be uttered in, in one one sometimes one syllable, but sometimes one sentence. And look what look what in verse three. He says, well, let me go back to to verse 2. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. And then he describes his his request. And look at verse, near the end of verse 4. So I prayed to the God of heaven. You can be sure that that prayer, while we don't know exactly the composition of it, he didn't say, oh, you want to hear my request? Give me five minutes. I'm going to go in the other room, pray to the Lord for a while, and then I'll come back. He didn't do that. Nehemiah prayed, Lord, God help me. Now I ask you, did God hear the the longer prayer of chapter one that Nehemiah is praying? Yes, he did. Did God hear the prayer that was uttered in a brief moment in chapter 2? Did God hear both prayers? Yes, he did. God is attentive to the prayers of our hearts. God knows the prayers of our hearts. In fact, Jesus said when he taught on prayer, he said, you don't need to go on and on and on and on like the Gentiles do, thinking that, that by their many words they're going to be heard. Your Father knows what you need already. It doesn't mean that all of what we pray is simply breath prayers, like super fast, shot, shot out there prayers. Those are legitimate. Longer prayers can be legitimate too. My point is God hears your every prayer. God hears them and He meets them. They may not be met in the exact way we might like, but God hears 
your prayers. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, a, a preacher in England, um, was reflecting on this nature of God hearing our prayers. And he said this. I, I found this helpful. There is one who cares for you. His eye is fixed upon you. His heart beats with pity for your woe, and his omnipotent hand shall yet bring you the needed help. Don't doubt his grace because of your tribulation, but believe that he loves you as much in the season of trouble as in times of happiness. I find that helpful. His eye is fixed upon his people. Listen to the words of 1 Peter. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Why is it important to remember that God is attentive to your prayer? Well, you might be like me this morning. You might have been praying for particular things for 10 years or 15 years or or two weeks, but it seems like an eternity. And God, for his own sovereign and good purposes, has not yet answered that prayer in the way at least you're praying it. And you may be tempted to think, Lord, I, I think maybe you've, you've not really heard me. The sovereign Lord who holds all things together is attentive to your prayer. The answer comes in his time. The answer certainly comes in his way. And his way is always right, though it may confound us, though we may be confused. God hears and is attentive to your prayer. Let me move to the third observation and final one. God moves hearts for his good purposes. I won't belabor this, but God had moved in Artaxerxes' heart for God's own good purposes, right? This is the same king that said, no more building. No, the temple, it stops. These people, they're not going to be good for me. I don't want this city rebuilt. Stop it. And this is the same king that now is supplying all the resources for this very thing to happen. God moved in the heart of a pagan king. God can move in anyone's heart at any time at all. God is the God who works to fulfill his promises through all kinds of means. You, you know that. You see that. God moved also in Nehemiah's heart to go. Now, again, think about the sacrifice of Nehemiah. He's, he's a cupbearer to the king. You can be sure he didn't live in a shack. You can be sure that he was well compensated for his important role of keeping the king alive. This was the capital of the vast and huge Persian Empire. You can believe that this was a beautiful place and that his role was, I would imagine, pretty soft and pretty cushy. He was well cared for. What was he leaving to go toward? He was going toward destitution. He was going toward working among rubble. He was going to people who were without hope. He was leaving what was comfortable and easy in his obedience to the Lord. He was leaving and going and God moved his heart. God put it in his heart to go and to leave behind because God was on the move and God was doing a restoring work. Nehemiah was moved by the glory of God. He was moved into action 
Like, I'll, I'll take leave of what's comfortable. I'll take leave of what I even enjoy. I'll take leave of my income. I'll take leave of all the things that are familiar to me. Because God's calling me to do something. God's called me to rebuild the walls and, and help, by so doing, restore the glory to God's city. I'll leave that behind. Do you see his heart? God was moving in his heart to leave it behind and sacrifice for God's glory. Nothing was going to stop God's goodness from being on display in the city of Jerusalem. And God is always moving in the hearts of people for his good. Sometimes we read uh, other catechisms. I was reading the Heidelberg Catechism. Why are these catechisms so helpful? Well, because they bring to us biblical theology in a concise format. And I want to read to you uh, question 28 of the Heidelberg Cat because it has bearing on this very point. Question 28 asks, What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by what? By his promise. Remember, he's the promise-keeping God. Answer, we can be patient in adversity. The people of Israel could be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in what kind of God? In our faithful God, and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. This fits so clearly with what God is doing here, moving on the heart of a king who had once stopped the building of the temple to now say, no, I'm going to give you resources to rebuild the walls. He's moving in the heart of Nehemiah, to go and, and leave behind and sacrifice, leave behind what he once enjoyed to go do the work that God had called him to do. God was moving in the hearts of his people to accomplish what purpose? To fulfill his promise. Do you see it? That promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, God is bringing it to fruition here. It's not completed until Christ arrives, but he's keeping his people and he is keeping his promise. So let me, let me wrap it up here. Let me call the worship team out and onto the stage. And, and I just want to ask a few questions to stir our hearts again. And Lord willing, that, that God may again grant us faith and trust and belief in who he is and what he promises to do. This covenant-keeping God, this God who, who never fails to uphold his word, that every single promise that he makes will always come to pass because he's the one who holds all hearts in his hands. We just heard that. This covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God has promised to you many things. I'm not even, for this moment, going to dial down in what the particular promise that you might need to be reminded of this morning. I trust the Lord by his Spirit will help you to see and comprehend the promise that God makes to you. I simply want to say, at a 30,000-foot view, dear church, be reminded, God is faithful to his promise this morning. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Not for one moment of one day of your entire life. He is 
a promise-keeping God. Now I ask you, what what does that mean for us in our day-to-day lives? It means that we can walk through this week not knowing all that this week holds, not knowing the doctor's report that we could possibly get, not knowing the, the kinds of things, either the joys or the challenges that await us in the coming year, in the coming decade, we don't know what's ahead. What we can know and what we do know this morning is that God is faithful to his promises. And church, if you're anything like me, I need to hear that uh, about every day. I need to hear those promises regularly. My heart needs to be attuned to the fact that even when I can't see it like those dear people in Jerusalem, when they couldn't see God at work, when they were in shame, they were broken down, that God is faithful to His promises. He is attentive not only to His promises, but He's attentive to our prayers, the prayers that we pray and when we're throwing our hearts before the Lord and also the prayers when the unexpected happens. I was at a, a wedding last night and the person to my right, uh, I was asking about how their year's been going and, and he was a father and he said to me, I've had a year that I could never imagine at all. He said my 20-year-old son just a few weeks ago was riding his motorcycle at 110 miles an hour and a deer came out and they met at 110 miles an hour. He was wearing a Hawaiian shirt and shorts and loafers. Fortunately, he had a helmet on. And this dad testified to me through tears to the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. To the faithfulness of God to preserve his son's life. His son was there. I saw him at the wedding hobbling. It it appears like he'll make a full recovery. He hadn't been able to wear clothes for the past couple of weeks because of how much his body had been scraped and burned and, and skin grafts and all kinds of things. But this dad, through tears in his face, saying, I don't like this. I would prefer that the, the deer had moved out of the way. But this is what I say. God is faithful to his promise. And he cares for his kids. And he never leaves us. And never forsakes us. Church, I don't know, you know how that lands on you, but I was strengthened and encouraged to hear this dad through tears testifying to the promise-keeping nature of our good God. Yes, there is mystery. Why didn't God move the deer? I don't know. I don't have that answer. Things can happen that we absolutely don't want. And sometimes it's a deep and abiding mystery. But what we rejoice in this morning, church, what brings a smile to our face this morning is that God is never unfaithful to his promise. There is not one in his holy word that he will not keep. That's one of the reasons he gives us this book, just to remind us afresh this morning 
wherever we are, whatever the circumstances that are happening in our hearts, He is faithful. He is faithful. He hears your prayers. He's attentive to your prayers. The long ones when you're crying out, the short ones. He hears you. And he moves hearts. Even in the hearts of pagan kings, God moves in the hearts of people to accomplish all of his good purposes. They cannot and they will not, his purposes will not be thwarted. Not by the sins of other people, not by the evil machinations of man. His promises will come to pass. We shall not be moved, church. He is faithful. Lord, this morning, we thank you for this testimony that we find here in Nehemiah. You moved in the heart of Nehemiah to leave behind the comforts of his situation to go and do the work that you wanted him to do. You moved in the heart of a pagan king to not only let this guy go, but supply him with protection and provision. You were bringing hope to the people who were in Israel who had perhaps lost hope, whose lives felt like it was a pile of rubble. And in their repentance and in their turning back to you, oh Lord, you reminded them of your deep and abiding love for them, even though they had ignored you and gone their own way, which was what caused the exile in the first place. You are a redeeming God. You are a restoring God. You give us hope when hope seems to be lost. Lord, thank you for the hope you give to us. Thank you that you don't treat us as our sins deserve. Thank you that you forgive us. Lord, if there's anyone here in this room that does not have the hope of their sins forgiven, Lord, would you help them to see this morning how kind you are in sending Jesus Christ. Lord, build faith in our hearts. Lord, you do judge sin. You are no wimpy God. You will judge all who reject your offer of forgiveness. So Lord, if there are any in this room who who have not yet bowed their knee to you, Lord, we pray that they would repent of their sins and turn to you and find the refreshing flow of your grace to come over them. That you would forgive them, Lord, and give them fresh hope this morning. For those of us who are your sons and your daughters, Lord, we, we need a reminder of the fresh hope that you give to us. Because life, it can beat us down. Day by day, we're surrounded in a culture that doesn't, that doesn't live for you, that doesn't, doesn't have interest for you, and, and we can pick up more than we think. And so we need these promises to operate for us. So this morning, Lord, we, we thank you that you remind us that you're a covenant-keeping, a promise-keeping God. Help us to remember that this week. Help us to know that you pay attention to every prayer that we utter. 
Because though you hold all things together in your sovereign power, you still care about even the numbers of the hairs on our head. We can't believe it, Lord, but we do believe it. And Lord, help us to know that when when even things just seem lost to us, you're moving in the hearts of people to accomplish your good purposes. Not even the sins of man can thwart what you say. Lord, you are the Lord. No man, no woman. And your purposes are going to prevail. So give us hope this morning. Lord, give us encouragement from these truths. Lord, lift our hearts today because you are faithful. And you never turn away from your promises. Lord, we pray this together in Jesus' name. We ask that you would build this faith in our hearts. Amen.